Super Talk Mississippi media production. What is Moondog? Moondog Makers and Bakers is not just a catering company. It's blended tradition with innovation and something familiar just done differently. To get a taste of what they're truly all about, you can order some awesome merch, crafted spice blends, or request catering for your very own event. MoondogMakersAndBakers.com. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome to Coast View, the show that every single day we celebrate. We celebrate Coastal Mississippi and the people who make this such a great place to live, work, and play. Hey, I, was, uh, I ran across a Warren Buffett quote that uh, my friend Frank Willem posted that I thought was really good. It sort of kind of told my story. When I was in uh, business and a CEO, I always thought that I need to surround myself with successful people, people who knew more about things than I did. And together, we would complement one another and we would grow our company and do well. And uh, that worked well for me. But here's the quote from Warren Buffett. It's better to hang out with people better than you. Pick out associates whose behavior is better than yours and you'll drift in that direction. You know, it's a lot about the influence of the people around you. And uh, that's kind of one of the reasons why social media is a problem in America, because it causes people to sort of drift toward their own tribes. And that's not always the best approach. I can assure you that. Um, That is for sure. Uh, My friend uh, Susan Myers Griggs posted this, and I thought it was terrific. And it is so true, actually. And, you know, if if there's a calling card for for Coast View, it has been my opportunity within this show to have conversations with people that I really never got to know deeply. And that's been a gift to me to have these hour-long conversations with people. But here is what it said. And I I think it's from Read, Love, and Learn. And it doesn't, you know, it got posted by that site, but doesn't have an author. But here's what it says. We are like books. Most people only see our cover. The minority read only the introduction. And many people believe the critics. Few will know our content. Isn't that sad, actually, that we move through life so fast, people not really knowing our content, that they're going to they're gonna take their first impression and what the critics say, and they're going to form their impression of you. And uh, to me, that's kind of a sad part of the world that we live in today. Uh, but I've enjoyed through Coast View getting to know people better. I'm not interested in what the critics say. I'm interested in forming my own opinion and sharing incredible stories with people about what it takes to make Coastal Mississippi such a great place to live, work, and play. And I hope you enjoy it, too. The feedback I continue to get on the show is absolutely incredible. I've uh, told you about the days on days on days in where we've had growth and uh, engagement at our uh, Coast View Facebook page. Now, these numbers don't even count. Super Talk Mississippi, Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast, the numbers on radio or what we get through the podcast platforms. But we've surpassed 70,000 impressions here on Coast View now. Which uh, which means we're touching a lot of people, and I'm thrilled by that. It you don't you don't get there unless you're honest with people, unless you, I guess you have to be somewhat interesting, and 
And you've got to uh, you got to be focused on uh, not faking it, but really telling the truth. And I, I think that's really important. That's what I've tried to do here on Coast View. So thank you so much for engaging, but to for being among that seventy thousand, and I really appreciate it. Okay, so now we're going to turn shift gears and move over to my friend Ashley Edwards. Uh, he's the former president of the Gulf Coast Business Council. He's in private practice now. We're going to get the latest on sort of what's going on in his world, but we're gonna we're gonna kind of circle back a little bit. Where, where you know we he and I talked about Elon Musk before we talked about uh, n- numerous other uh, conversations we're going to try to cover the the waterfront today just a smart well read guy that I just wanted to touch base with how you doing Ashley hey I'm doing great Ricky glad to be with you so let's remind people what you're doing these days well I'm in a, I'm in private practice these days I have a sort of a multifaceted consulting business along with some partners that are incredibly competent, been in the business a long time. And, you know, we're doing a number of different things. One of the sort of favorite parts, I guess, for me is has been we're working on post-disaster recovery, long-term recovery strategy. Uh, just recently got back from the state of Montana, uh, where I went up to be the keynote uh, speaker at a Montana recovery forum based on the, uh, the big disaster they had there last summer with the Yellowstone floods. And you know, it's just been it's been so great um, to be able to to kind of get back into that world, and it brings me right back into the Katrina days. Uh, but it's it's been a lot of fun, and uh, I tell you, it's also been a lot of work. But things are going very well, Ricky. So I appreciate you checking in with me. That's uh, that's really really important what you're doing because you know the truth is after working in the post Katrina world with Haley Barber with his team. And seeing all the creative and innovative approaches that we use to to create funding mechanisms and opportunities for us to to bring this community back, you learned a lot. You learned a lot about resiliency. You learned a lot about sort of the federal process and 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 where you might be able to move things in certain directions to make certain things happen. And uh, that's given you really a skill set that that is. Um, that is transportable to other communities, and especially communities that have not gone through major disasters, and that's got to that's got to be exciting for you to be able to share that. Well, you know, it's it's really amazing, and it as time goes on, we're 18 years removed from Katrina now, and I look back and and even have greater admiration for the leadership that Governor Haley Barber showed after Hurricane Katrina, because you know, especially as I've now gotten first person involved in you know Hurricane Ian in Florida and the Yellowstone floods in in Montana, uh, Hurricane Michael in Florida, uh, some of the hurricanes that have hit Louisiana. You see just how rare of a thing it is to be uh, that creative and that innovative in the way that you approach approach a post disaster environment. And so, you know, it, it's allowed me to share a lot of things that we did uh, in Mississippi. It's allowed me to not only share those best practices, but also explain to people just how difficult it is in the real world uh, to provide that kind of leadership in a very prescriptive type of an environment. And so, you know, the Mississippi story is still alive and well and and just as important today uh, as it was 18 years ago. And I'll tell you, Ricky, the thing that I come back to time and time again when I go and I tell this story about the various things we did in Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina is is the fact that that people from the outside look at that and say, how in the world did you guys accomplish that? They they see, especially considering how difficult their post-disaster environment is, 
just how incredibly, almost impossible it was for us back in those days. And when they see the results of that 18 years on, they're really impressed by what we did in Mississippi. And that's a credit to Haley Barber. That's a credit to uh, our state leadership. And it's also an incredible credit to the people of coastal Mississippi. Because uh, in many ways, that was the catalyst. That was what made the difference is that we had people uh, in our region who were so incredibly self-sufficient, so incredibly self-reliant, and who were so incredibly committed not only to bringing about their own personal recovery, but also the recovery of their home, of their region. And, uh, you know, important stuff. And so it, it's, uh, it's quite a pleasure to be able to do some of this type of work. Well, I'm, I'm proud for you. And you get to work closely with your wife, Felicity, who is an expert of her own. I mean, she's uh, an incredibly talented person as well, isn't she? Well, she's, you know, she's gotten so much incredible experience over her career, uh, not only with the early days after Hurricane Katrina and a lot of the work that she did back in those days, but later with the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. You know, I tell people all the time without even uh, without even blinking twice that, you know, she is one of the uh, one of the, the true experts in the United States on federal compliance and on, um, you know, making sure that local and state governments are able to uh, fully utilize the resources that are available through the federal government to bring about their recovery post-disaster. And I, I learn from her every single day. She is a force of nature to be certain. Well, you you make a, a dynamic duo, <laughs> and I know some of the other people that you work with, and they're also incredibly dynamic, and it'll be fun to watch the growth of your company as you guys continue to do what you do so well, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to have you as a friend. Listen, uh, you and I, have, we've covered the waterfront on so many issues along the way, but like, we'll, still, we'll keep it in Mississippi for just a second. You know, one of the one of the things that frustrated me watching the healthcare system in Mississippi, and I, I go back to my conversation with the CEO uh, from uh, Singing River Health System, T Tiffany Murdoch. Uh, as you know, Singing River is going through a process, a, an RFP process that the uh, trustees and the supervisors in Jackson County all support. They originally were thinking about strategic partners and sale, but they're fully focused on sale these days. And they wanted to do it while they were strong. And so Tiffany and I have spent a couple of shows together talking about the dynamic situation the healthcare system finds themselves in. You know, in other words, if you're not big, you can't buy on scale. The not kind of technology you need, the kind of investments you have to make and staying on the cutting edge is pretty tremendous. You think about where big pharma is and where insurance companies are, where things like uh, Medicaid are these days, um, Medicare, it's, uh, it's very complex. And there is no single solution, That's, that is for sure. But one of the things she pointed out when we were talking about how in Mississippi we're pushing against this need to expand Medicaid, a lot of people explain it a way that Mississippi has made the right decisions as it relates to that. But I was in New Orleans when uh, Governor John Bell Williams became governor, and we wrote numerous editorials about the need for uh, Louisiana to expand Medicaid. And when we get on the other side, I'll tell you what we learned about that and what frustrates me about Mississippi's current position. I just want to get your thoughts about it as well. We'll see you after this with Ashley Edwards. Listen 
live or on demand and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. His love for the coast is why he's here. It's Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I have my friend Ashley Edwards with us, and we're going we're gonna to talk about a, a range of subjects. Before we went to break, we were talking about the what something that frustrates me today in this state as it relates to Mississippi not enabling Medicaid to be expanded in, in Mississippi. But as I mentioned before we went to break, we editorialized a lot about this when I was in Louisiana. And the very first action, the very first action that John Bell Williams, excuse me, John Bell Edwards uh, uh, did when he got became the governor of Louisiana is he expanded Medicaid. I had had um, I had, had you know numerous conversations with the the previous the previous governor and uh, Governor Jindal, and I had sat with him uh, once uh, two or, between two and three hours, just the two of us at the mansion in Louisiana talking about lots of issues, including the expansion of Medicaid and his reason for not wanting to do it. And keep in mind, he was he was a health care policy expert. That was his background. But his reason for not doing it is that we owed China enough money already and that, you know, that was kind of the reason for, for not doing it. But what we did is we focused as at the timespeakunitnola.com, editorially, we focused on the economic impact of doing so, how many more people it was helped, how many people were seeking medic, medical attention in the state of Alabama, excuse me, in the state of Louisiana, who were not covered by insurance and who would have who would have been covered by a scenario with Medicaid expansion. The troubling scenario that rural hospitals go through these days. Now, this is the point that met, that Tiffany Murdoch, CEO of Singer River, was saying to me, and that is that what's happening in the industry, what needs to happen in Mississippi, there needs to be a reengineering of the entire healthcare system in Mississippi. We need to decide where can we have full service hospitals, where can we not have full service hospitals. We need maybe strategically located quote unquote trauma centers where people can be stabilized and then transferred out to have major surgeries. OBGYN is not something that can be afforded in every community and and so on and so on. But we need a reengineering. But Mississippi, if you go back and look at when you know, they called it Obamacare, that's what the Republicans want to call it, although Republican governors have accepted Medicaid expansion. Um, we Mississippi has has said no to billions of dollars, billions of dollars. We're talking about somewhere in the vicinity of three quarters of a of a billion dollars a year. We're saying no to. Would that money have made a difference to the rural hospitals in Mississippi? Believe me, it wouldn't have solved the problem of the need to reengineer the healthcare system in Mississippi. But but believe me, from a financial point of view, it would have made a huge difference. That's why hospital CEOs. Uh, from across the state, the Hospital Association and many others have really begged our state to take politics out of it and just look at the numbers. We're not saying that it's going to be the solution. It's just it's, it's, a, it's an important contributor to the ultimate solution. That's kind of where I am. And it's frustrating to see sort of the politicizing of it. I see others writing about it that I think is nothing more than political cover for for political leaders in our state that want to do away with it. And I'm conservative. I point this out. I, I am a conservative, and I believe this is the right right approach. What do you think, Ashley? Have you done much thinking about this? I have, Ricky, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. In fact, I was able to catch your conversation with Tiffany Murdoch. I thought that you guys had a, a really an important conversation about this topic. 
And I, one of the things I agree with wholeheartedly that you said is um, we've got to take the politics out of it. You know, Obamacare became such a boogeyman in the popular political vernacular, not only in Mississippi, but across the U.S. And this this issue has continued to kind of ride that wave over a number of years. Frankly, if the politics were out of it, this would have already been done. Um, you know, I think reliable polling has shown time and time again that the majority of Mississippians support expansion of Medicaid. I think from a pragmatic standpoint, Ricky, we've got to come to terms in this state with the understanding that until we are able to truly figure out a way to create greater resiliency in the most vulnerable populations in our state, our state as a whole is not going to progress the way that we want it to. Um, when you continue to have the type of disparities that we have in Mississippi and you don't do things continuously to close that gap, it's always going to be difficult for the state as a whole to move forward. And you're absolutely correct. There, it's not a one-issue solution. Um, it's a complex problem. But I'll tell you, what you know, in my days at the Business Council, I listened very closely to what the leadership at our hospitals were saying. I listened very closely to what our critical care physicians were saying, what our nurses were saying. And, you, you know, it was unanimity coming from those voices in the sense that, you know, we're on a dangerous path here in the state if we continue to allow uh, the type of dissolution that we're seeing in our healthcare system. And what, what I found, frankly, amazing over the course of this year in this legislative session was all of the sort of um, counter propaganda that started coming out saying, well, this is really not as big of a problem as it's, as it's made out to be. And you say that to a hospital administrator in Mississippi and they're fit to be tied. They're saying, wait, wait a second, what do you, we're living this every single day. This is an incredible problem. So, you know, there again, I think that pragmatism is gonna have to win the day at some point here and I do a lot of listening, Ricky, to the dialectical changes that occur in our state politics and in the, the narrative around our state political positions. And it is very clear to me that that dialectical change is continuing to move in a direction in which we're going to see this happen. I don't think it's a question of if, I think it's just a question of when. And for the sake of our hospitals, especially our rural hospitals in Mississippi, I hope that win is, is sooner than later. You know, if this were an economic development project where Mississippi could put up some money and get a, a three-quarters of a billion-dollar return, we wouldn't even be thinking twice about it. We'd call a special session, and we would we would get it done. And interestingly enough, Gary Marshan, the former administrator from Memorial Hospital in Guppport, is now the administrator uh, at uh, Greenwood Hospital in in, uh, in the Mississippi Delta, and for 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 listeners, you you know that I, that I have at least some farms up there for hunting and spending time. I just love the Mississippi Delta, and uh, I've had to take a friend at least once to the to the hospital, and a couple of times we've had to go to what are, what are essentially. Uh, um, you know, little clinics up there, but healthcare is really in trouble in places like the Mississippi Delta, and um, and to me that's an economic development issue too. The fact that you're you're trying to attract you're trying to attract people to Mississippi, and there are certain parts of Mississippi that has compromised healthcare systems. That can't be a good thing for us. And you know, if I were Governor Reeves, what I would do is I would uh, I would form a a Katrina like effort around this, buddy. 
and I would get the smartest people in the room, and I would try to take politics out of it. And I would say, look, just like Haley did, you know, Haley brought Jim Barksdale, the largest contributor to Ronnie Musgrove, his competitor in the governor's race, and he brought him in as to be the chairman of the governor's commission after Hurricane Katrina. And he brought, you know, William Winter into the fold and others. Uh, Derek Johnson, who's now president of NAACP in the United States, was on the steering committee for our effort. But the point is, we have to have an effort like that that brings everybody to the table and helps us understand where does where does expansion fit in, and then what are the other things that have to happen in Mississippi so that we have a vision going forward. We can make decisions within the context of that. We keep kicking that ball down the down the road, and we're saying no to billions and billions of dollars. That that would certainly contribute toward b- better solutions, better healthcare opportunities in Mississippi. Um, you had uh, you had good support from your from the executive committee, of the business council around this issue too, didn't you, Ashley? We did. In fact, you know, as I was coming on this morning, and you had mentioned to me that this might be a topic we talk about today, I was actually thinking back to the eight years I spent there, and I can honestly say, in eight years. Um, I never heard on on the coast anyway any business or community leader who was against Medicaid expansion. You know, and look, I am completely understanding of the fact that there are serious and good people who disagree on issues like this. You know, look, I'm a very physical, physically conservative person. I do not like to see wasteful spending. I think government spends too much, and oftentimes this issue has sort of centered around. The discussion of, well, look at the additional cost to the state of Mississippi if we accept these federal funds. But in public policy, the primary consideration always has to be not just what is the cost of doing something, but also what is the cost of doing nothing. And it is an absolute fallacy to believe that there is no cost if you do nothing. We are racking up cost every single day because we've done nothing. And I think arguably the cost of doing nothing is becoming greater than the cost of doing something in this situation. So, you know, for someone out there who says, look, I'm a fiscal conservative, I don't want the state to spend uh, extra money at this point, keep in mind, it's costing us regardless. Uh, so at this point, it's what makes the what makes the best and most sustainable investment going forward. You know, and actually the, the anti-Obamacare argument is no longer, no longer work uh, because it's here to stay. And uh, and and there's literally no way they won't have Medicaid expansion going forward in, in states across the nation as long as that money's there for us and can be part of the solution in Mississippi. I really I really harp on that because what needs to happen in our state is re-engineering, and we need to have our private sector and our political sectors come together and find this solution and quit politicizing the darn thing. People are dying because the healthcare system is in shambles in Mississippi and we're not solving the problem. We're just not solving the problem. When we come back on the other side, we'll talk about the latest in Elon Musk's world. We'll see you after this. for free to the Coast View Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. 
Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. Have my friend Ashley Edwards with us. And uh, I enjoyed the conversation. It was an important conversation, actually, about Medicaid expansion and and, and what what's happening in that uh, that world these days. I want to I'm pulling up a story, actually, uh, speaking of Elon Musk. And this is a story that just appeared in the street uh, literally in the last day or so. And here here is what the top of the story says. The humiliation, this is, okay, this is the headline. Tesla CEO becomes world's richest man again. The humiliation only lasted a little over two months. Elon Musk has recovered his title of richest man in the world that he had this taken away, that was taken away in mid-December by French businessman Bernard Arnault. And it goes on to talk about it, but it uh, it, it talks about the, the almost unbelievable recovery of, um, of uh, Tesla and what's happening with Tesla. He continues to, you know, he can do whatever he does. It, it just gets the hyper focuses on it, whatever he says, whatever he does, but he continues to stay focused on a company that is going to solve a lot, a lot of uh, the problems that Twitter was having. It's uh, with 7,500 employees. Now it's less than 2000 employees. They just had a more, uh, one additional uh, layoff. And now he's communicating with employees that those that are here now, are the ones that are going forward. How do you read uh, sort of where he is today? Look, I think he's had some stumbles. I mean, you, you know that I'm a big fan of Elon Musk, have been for many years. Um, I'm also a, a Tesla stockholder. Um, I think it's the single largest position I have. And, and I'm a guy who's generally against holding individual stocks. I usually would, would be in favor of of, uh, of more diverse, uh, you know, equities and securities. But but I'll tell you, it's been difficult for me watching the stock price kind of disintegrate over time. Um, I think Elon Musk generally is, is going to default to a position of success long term. But there's no question, I think, what we've seen happen over the last six months or so, really since he's got Twitter in earnest, is he's been kind of feeling his way through this and, you know, had a a very concrete business plan for what had to happen within that company uh, to get it in a more sustainable situation. But he's also allowed himself to to sort of get into the culture wars and, and all these other things that go along with it. And, you know, look, Elon Musk is not asking me for advice. Uh, I'm certain that that will probably never happen. If I was going to give him advice, one of the things I would say is don't don't give away your time and your words when there's not a clear return. Um, In some ways, I think he's getting involved in things that probably don't interest him a lot. But he's but he's trying to kind of feel his way through, uh, you know, the political um, philosophy that he's seeing among, you know, quote unquote, his base. Um, and, you know, I think that's always dangerous. And so I, my, my thing for Elon Musk is I'm much more happy when I see the Elon Musk who is a statesman than the Elon Musk who is a sort of daily contributor to public opinion. Because I think the first one is going to give him a lot of long-term success and really move our world forward economically in a lot of ways. I think the second one is going to make him have a, a six months like he's just had. So that's my general take on it. You know, I, I'm still a fan of Elon Musk, 
But there are sometimes that I, I cringe a little bit at the things he allows himself to get sidetracked on. Well, I mean, like the most recent, we won't go into detail about it, but his most recent issue around the Dilbert uh, cartoon and saying that media is racist against white people and Asians. You, you you can't win when you're in his position. You start trying to weigh in on race. You know, I, I, I just think that that's not why is he even doing that? But I, I think what we've learned about Elon is you're going to get you're going to get sort of what's on his mind. And that's just the way it's going to be. Um, and then in, in between all that, you're going to see things like this, this tweet he did in the last few days. This is this is the tweet having a bit of A.I. existential angst today. And, um, you know, one of his biggest concerns is artificial intelligence and where it's going. And I didn't, I didn't really understand this, but he was actually one of the co-founders of OpenAI in 2015. As most people know, you know, that's a high-profile chatbot. And there's a lot of concerns about whether it's, you know, building into its artificial intelligence this sort of woke mentality. And now he's actually approaching some AI researchers and he's focused on, you know, how can they go about this a different way? But to me, I think he's trying to kill two birds with one stone. He's may, maybe creating an alternative to open AI. I don't want to get too deep into this for people who don't understand how artificial intelligence works. Or to what extent does he want to engage some of that technology in the way Twitter decides what's in our news feed? See, at the end of the day, we know that in order for, for Twitter to be in any social media company to be financially viable, it has to use artificial intelligence as a way of sort of screening what content makes it and what content doesn't. And how you program that AI determines, you know, what we see or whether it's going to be buried or not. But he's, he's, uh, he's really struggling with that. And, he, and again, if you ask him what are his most, most – what is he most afraid of? Is it nuclear war or artificial intelligence? He will always say artificial intelligence. He's deeply concerned about where all this could be headed. And I think he's right to be focused on that, don't you, buddy? I think. Look, I absolutely agree with that. I think the amazing thing about Elon <clears throat> Musk is he is such a seeing eye dog into the future and what are going to be the issues that really cause us a lot of consternation as time goes on. I mean, Elon Musk was talking about the dangers of AI before many consumers had ever even experienced an AI interface. You know, Elon Musk has been a leader in talking about the realities of what population collapse is going to do for the first world in the next 50 years. And these are, you know, big humanity altering issues that he's taken on. And I think he's absolutely right on on those issues. In some ways, that's why I wish he would keep his eye on the ball about these things that are important and, and not fight these kind of transitional culture war battles. You know, right now, sort of the battle against wokeness is, is the topic du jour. Um, but the truth of the matter is, when you are the CEO of multiple consumer products companies, as a shareholder, my position on that is I want you to be very careful not to alienate con potential consumers. And so from that perspective, I think having that eye toward what are the big challenges and big issues that humanity is going to have to deal with whether they want to or not, whether it's the rise of AI or the effects of population collapse or any of the other number of issues that he's taken on, you know, a climate change, which is whether, you know, whether you agree with the, 
the the sort of premises of what's causing climate change, there really can't be any serious disagreement that we're seeing it occur. And he's really been on the front lines of that issue. And so, you know, a guy like Elon Musk has such incredible power and incredible breadth and reach with the words that he uses and the words that he says. I hope he will continue to keep his eye on the ball uh, and, and not sort of take the bait to to fight in the kiddie pool. Yeah, but I can't agree with you more about that. Some of this is just a factor of his personality. But just, I mean, just in the last few days, let me let me just share a couple of things with you. This is a Tesla tweet just in the past week. In 2022, we grew to 47,000 direct employees and $5 billion in capital investment in California. Today, we're continuing our investment in California with our new engineering headquarters in Palo Alto. I mean, you know, in the heart of Silicon Valley. Of course, you know, we, we just saw the, the Falcon 9 uh, launch 21 second-generation Starlink satellites to our orbit just in the last uh, few days. And, um, and and then Starlink in and of itself, which is a subset of uh, of his space efforts. But, I mean, it's it's going to be – it's going to cre- create high, uh, broadband Internet access for the entire world, you know, a, a global capability. Um, and I could just go on. I mean, in every respect, Twitter is just a small piece of the overall situation. Right. I believe he's still going to he's still going to do it. In fact, he's probably financially viable right now, based on the cuts and the changes he's made in such a short period of time. Now, how does he how does he become sort of the super app that you and I have talked about before, where payments are part of it and all these other aspects, and he is uh, competing with some of the largest you know, super apps in the in the world. Um, he believes Twitter can become the most, most, uh, the most uh, financially successful and the most valuable company in the world. He really believes that. So, you know, you see what he's done at SpaceX. You see what he's done at Tesla. You see the work that he's doing in the boring company. You see the work that he's done with Starlink. Of course, that's a subset of SpaceX, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago. You know, is there any stop in this modern-day Einstein, this, this modern-day Edison? Well, you know, what's interesting, Ricky, is from a Wall Street analyst's uh, sort of point of view, there is no company that Elon Musk has ever invested in and started that was expected to be successful. And he has beat expectations across the board in every case. So Elon Musk is just not a guy that I would ever bet against based on his track record of success performance. I mean, you know, people thought Tesla was just kind of a, a money dump that this rich guy who uh, was never going to be able to pull it off and try to take on the well-established automotive industry in the world. But, you know, in retrospect, you know, it's now become the, the most valuable automobile company in the world in a relatively short period of time. So Elon Musk is just not a guy to bet, again and bet against in business. I'm not betting against him. Hey, when we come back with Ashley Edwards, we'll continue the conversation. We'll see you after this. Also, listen live to Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on your Amazon Alexa devices. Once you've enabled the skill, just say, Alexa, open Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I have my friend Ashley Edwards with us, and we're talking about a wide variety of topics. But in this final segment, I wanted to take a, a bit of a step back. 
and uh, and talk a little bit about leadership development in coastal Mississippi. It's so, you know, it can be a boring subject, but it's it's not at all. It, I mean, it's one we need to be having. But um, but the, the fact that we have so many incredible emerging leaders in coastal Mississippi, we can never have enough of them. Uh, this is the work. This is work that that so many the chambers, the Gulf Coast Business Council, so many organizations are focused on. I think the award, the One Coast Award, is a is a real good way to hold people up as an example, and to, to not only recognize great leaders, but also I, I think the the more important thing actually is the, the the example that that they're setting for others, and that's one of the things that I enjoy talking about here on Coast View regularly. Um, but actually, we can't talk about that enough, can we? We can't look. It, it is, in my opinion, it's probably the most important uh, activity that's occurring on the coast as it relates to sort of growing our our leadership bench and our our leadership culture on the coast. S- so much of community leadership is getting people who have real power, real influence, uh, real reach in the community to sort of understand the difference between their own interests or, or their own sort of personal biases and their community interests. And oftentimes what we find is, well, let me back up and I'll say this, Ricky. One of the things that was always amazing to me about the Gulf Coast Business Council's master's leadership program was that we would begin the year with 25, 30 uh, diverse people from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic level, levels, uh, different industries, um, and they would, you know, we, we would have the first two or three meetings, and they would be just sort of all over the place in the ways that they viewed things. By the time that we got to the end, in 100% of the cases, we had absolute unanimity among the group in the recommendations they wanted to make and the direction they wanted to take about public policy in coastal Mississippi. And the amazing thing about that is when you take people of goodwill and you put them in a room together and you let them learn from each other and you let them understand an issue, oftentimes they will end up arriving at a very similar place. So in many ways, it becomes a microcosm for really our kind of society as a whole, which is, uh, you know, when people are able to look at things through a lens that is different often than the biases that we just wake up with every morning, oftentimes they can find a lot of common ground. And I think that that is one of the true values of the leadership development programs in coastal Mississippi, because you're creating people that really are forming consensus around where we need to go as a region. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it doesn't matter who I talk to, whether it's Paige over in Jackson County or Tish over in Hancock County or Dell in Harrison County, or it used to be you, and of course now Jamie, as it relates to the master's program for the Gulf Coast Business Council. These these programs have really improved over the years. You know, this this notion of the experience that you're providing for these people to see with their own eyes, to talk to the thought leaders. In the case of Tish, you know, really serious engagement around Stennis Space Center and what's happening there. Uh, you know, the gaming industry, the port, and all these other things happening in Harrison County. You, you think about Chevron and Ingalls and all that's happening over there. But, you know, just trying to broaden the horizon. I've had the opportunity the last two years to speak to the Leadership Gulf Coast class, and I'm deeply impressed with the questions they ask 
and the level of engagement. I, I usually don't go in with an agenda. I, m- I make a few comments about the broader coastal Mississippi um, um, region, and then I let them decide where we where we can take the conversation. And it gives me an opportunity to sort of pull from the past, but it, but it connected to the future and talk about where the challenges are. You know, you as a former president of the Gulf Coast Business Council, you stood. You know, we we were engaged in lots of issues together. And, uh, you know, it can be frustrating. It can be so frustrating trying to make progress because uh, Coastal Mississippi is big, kind of clunky, lots of elected officials, lots of cities, lots of county seats. You know, it's not, you know, if you think about, we've talked about Huntsville, Alabama before, but when Huntsville needed to go to Washington, they just gathered the Huntsville leadership and went. Well, here it's harder because there are so many different political subdivisions and people um, it's it's uh, it's the largest region of Mississippi. It's also the comp- most complicated. So engaging people in the complexities of that and helping them understand why it's important for us to work really hard to get aligned, why we need a plan for the future so we can be aligned around that. If we don't have a plan, what ends up happening is political leaders are going to kind of take it where they want to take it. And oftentimes that's protecting the status quo. And that can be awfully frustrating at times, can it, James? Uh, listen to me, James, uh, uh, Ashley. Well, look, he may he may take exception to that, but I'm I'm happy for you to call me Jamie. I'm I'm proud of the job he's doing, and so glad to have him in the position he's in. And frankly, I think this is something he's seeing too. I mean, Ricky, you and I have talked about it a, a million times, and I'll just be candid about it. There is no question that we have just had some abject leadership failures in coastal Mississippi, especially in the political arena. Um, I know that you feel the same way I do when you go into these rooms with a lot of these young leaders, these coach young professionals and others. I can't wait to live on the coast that they run in those leadership positions because I have so much confidence in the direction and the vision they have for where we're going. And I think that's a transition that I hope will come will come about sooner than than later. I'm sure it will. I see I see a metamorphosis happening in Coastal Mississippi. It's been going on for 20 years, and it's going to continue to happen, where we're more aligned than ever and more focused on realizing our potential, which is absolutely incredible. Hey, Ashley Edwards, it's been great to visit with you, my friend. Have a great day, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Ricky. My pleasure. Follow Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Super Talk MS Coast 103.1. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.